With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And today I'm so pleased to have as my guest, Chaz August, who has offered life, relationship, and intimacy personal coaching while also co-developing and leading personal growth workshops, including 17 years as a facilitator for the Human Awareness Institute, or HI, which is where I first met him. Welcome to the show, Chaz. Well, thank you. Um, it's nice to be here. And uh, I don't know when listeners will be listening to this, but right now we are talking. It's the first night of Hanukkah, so happy Hanukkah. Happy Festival of the Light. And uh, I celebrate light wherever the light can get in. So happy Hanukkah. Mm. Thank you so much for presenting that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, great. Happy Hanukkah. Okay, well, um, so I remember you as a high facilitator, and you are now a um, a coach in the areas of relationship, intimacy, um, sexuality. Um, but I do remember you being someone who had a really great balance of compassion, but also kind of fierce, penetrating wisdom. Um, you kind of had this ability to um, to really see what people weren't saying, um, and you know, kind of mine them for the the story, the quote story underneath their, underneath what they're saying. So I really appreciated that about you um, when I witnessed you as a facilitator. And um, tell me how you came to become a coach and how you got into this field of, of intimacy and relationships and sexuality. There's lots of answers to that. Uh, probably the simplest answer to that was that um, I was not a very happy young man. I, I grew up uh, a middle child in an alcoholic household. And I don't really remember being very happy from the time I was 12 until I was in my 30s. I, uh, I kept trying to do things externally to create internal happiness. And of course, it never worked, you know. And so it was relationships right. and jobs and houses and just never worked. And uh, somewhere... I got the idea maybe personal growth type workshops would help. And I, I did a workshop called uh, actualizations, which was really powerful. Um, I got involved in uh, some conflict resolution work called uh, project victory. I uh, each sort of step of personal growth kind of opened up in me uh, some pretty uh, sweet places that were totally internal. They had nothing to do with external, right? And, and, and I kind of began to see that the life I wanted to lead really didn't have a whole lot to do with the things I had been chasing externally. It really, I really felt called to figure out at a fundamental level who I was. And then in the process that becomes what you how you interact with others right I began kind of compelled to figure out who the people around me really were and all of this happened around the time that I found high and uh, I uh, high has uh, multiple levels of workshops and I did the, my first high workshop as a participant in 1988 in the summer of 1988 and all of a sudden I felt like I had found my tribe here were people that I was sure loved me, even though many of them did not know my last name. Mm. Even though hardly anybody even asked me like what I do for a living. But I, but I knew they loved me and I loved them. And I wanted to chase it. So I 
took class, I took courses. I learned how to be a hypnotherapist. I took a course in neurolinguistic programming. I took a, I took a course in uh, emp- uh, empathetic listening and active listening and parenting. I, 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 you know, I, I chased learning. And then mm-hmm. I had all this knowledge. So I began to invite people who, for whom, really mostly people for whom traditional therapies weren't doing much to come and talk to me. And uh, this was, I really, I saw my first clients in 1989. So <laughs> I, I just started doing it, hung out a shingle and started wow. doing it. Uh, cool. So that's kind of how I found my way in, I think. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And did you call yourself a coach back then? Because that wasn't a very frequently used term. <laughs> I I needed a name for what I was doing. And uh, I, when I, yes, I did call myself a coach back then, but I, I thought of the word coach, not as life coach, more like a sports coach. That I, that I noticed, like, when, when I, uh, I didn't learn to ski till I was an adult. And so um, pretty much every time I would go to a ski slope, I would start by taking a lesson. And somebody would coach me in how to ski. And, you know, they never shamed me for not being a natural skier. They never blamed me or shamed me or made me feel bad about the childhood I had that didn't include skiing. They never, they never um, <laughs> questioned my integrity about why I wasn't skiing better. They just gave me tools and tips and ideas how to have a better experience on skis. And that's kind of what I felt like I was doing for people who came and talked to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not really a therapist. I don't think something's broken and I'm going to help you fix it. I'm really more a coach. Um, I have insight into actual steps you can take to give you a better experience, better, happier, an experience more fulfilling, more what you want. And so I just seem like the term. Perfect. Yeah. I remember Tony Robbins talking about that too, where he came up with the term coach because it fit more like what a, a coach of a sports team or, or like you said, a ski coach would do. So that's really in alignment with how he came up with that term too. That's cool. I, I, I may have read that in Tony Robbins back at the time. I, uh, neuro-linguistic programming, which was sort of where Tony first made his impact, was, was fascinating to me. And uh, I, I, made, I made quite a study of it for a while back in the early 90s. So it's possible that, mm-hmm. that I lifted that idea from Tony, but I don't remember lifting it from there, but it's possible. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you said that you were one of the co-developers of the curriculum for high. Um, was that from all of the workshops and studies that you had done? So high is a very interesting. How do I describe this? You can't just lead high workshops. There, there wasn't when I was taking the workshops, there wasn't even a training program to become a leader of high events. They didn't exist. Um, Stan Dale, the founder, he, he had a belief that you couldn't really make a facilitator. You just, you found them somewhere and then you polished them. But, mm. but they already had the skills. They didn't, you couldn't impart those skills. And Stan, thank God, saw that I had some of those skills. Mm. He, he saw in me uh, something. Uh, something that when he saw it, I'm not sure I really even saw it. I hoped for it, but I don't know that I really saw it. Um, but he saw it in me something and, and began to help me cultivate that something. And so beautiful. what happens is to be, yeah, yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I stand past uh, in 2008 and I miss him every day. I, I just I miss him every day. 2007, 2007, I think, actually. Um, anyway, um, so what happens is that the process of becoming a facilitator in high is not really about getting hired for a job. It's about developing both the presentation skills, but also 
who you are personally mm-hmm. to be able to lead the workshop in the way that Stan dreamed that the workshop should be led. So learning how to be a facilitator and learning how to be a coach were kind of the same thing. They were mm-hmm. really learning how to find deep truths in me, um, in others. They were about learning how to listen. It was really about learning how to uh, see love everywhere and, and elicit it and, and uh, work with it. Mm, I love that. That's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, you, you consider yourself poly-friendly, and most of my listeners are exploring open relationship or ethical non-monogamy and they're kind of new to it. So can you tell me a little bit what you mean by poly-friendly? Yes, I can. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I have this experience. I, I have clients who come and tell me of uh, various therapists, coaches, professionals they've gone to who basically – Um, try to convince them that the problem that they're having in their relationship is because it's the problem of poly relationships. As as if to say, there's a flaw in that kind of relationship. And so you're always going to have problems with that. And, uh, you know, really, maybe you should think about that, right? And -hmm. and I don't believe that. I I believe there's, uh, I kind of, Right. Uh, the the, the um, uh, in uh, Chip, contra- I'm sorry. Buddhist- I mean, uh, Chaz, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but um, you cut out for you cut out for a minute. Oh, um, I'll let okay. you know if it happens sorry. again. But I lost a couple seconds, so if you could start over <laughs> with um, uh, you you don't agree with the model that there's something flawed to a poly relationship. That was the last thing I heard you say. Well. I'm glad that I'm glad that at least you heard that. That was good. That's good. Yes. I, I think, I think relationship is the fast path to enlightenment and I don't think it matters. Well, I mean, I think all relationships are the fast path to enlightenment. I think when we, uh, when we love and then we try to build together from that love, when, when we, when we be in intimate connection with each other, and then try to build a life maintaining that intimate connection, we bump up against our limitations, our limiting beliefs. We bump up against our, uh, the places that feel uncomfortable. We bump up against our assumptions about uh, where depth is and how deep we can go and our assumptions about who we are and what our partner's supposed to be and what we're supposed to be. And my experience is that happens in poly relationships, that happens in monogamy relationships. I see that happening in parental relationships. I see that happening. That is the work of relationship. And so when I say I'm poly friendly, what I mean is I don't think poly is the problem, whatever the problem you're having is. I think there may be some communication skills you need to learn, or there may be some practice in how to hear truth that's uncomfortable to hear. But I don't notice that that's more for poly people than it is for people who are in monogamous relationships. Uh, There may be, I mean, sometimes I think if I have one lover, then we could say I have X amount of friction. And if I have two lovers and we're all in a, in an open poly, in a poly uh, uh, relationship, then maybe I have X squared (laughs) friction, but I don't think that's really true. I don't really think it's true. What I notice is for some of us, putting all of our, it doesn't feel intuitive, comfortable, right to limit ourselves to this, this notion of the nuclear family, two parents and maybe a kid or two kids or five kids, you know, that it doesn't, for some of us, that is not what our heart wants. It is not, there's something in our makeup, in our, in our fundamental of who we are that is not going to do well in that. And for some of us, we're only going to do well in that. We're not going to do well trying to have two partners or three partners. We're not, we're just not. 
we're not, it's not in our makeup. It's not. And so I don't see, as I say, I don't think the problem is the form of the relationship that you're drawn to be in. I think there are opportunities for relationship skills. I think there are opportunities. I think relationships are, are fast paths for growth and growth is often uncomfortable. And, and I think the problems that come up in poly relationships are the problems that come up in monogamy relationships, mostly with some different flavors. They have some different flavors. So it's all that. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I just don't, I just think human beings make wide ranges of choices about what their hearts really want in terms of partnership and relationship. And I don't think any of it's really wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't mm-hmm. Thank I you. how we are. Right. Um, do you think that people who want to pursue a polyamorous relationship or lifestyle need to kind of have a little bit more emotional development and maturity, better communication skills, or at least be ready to learn them real quick? Like, do you think that it, it requires... Um, more emotional maturity than monogamy. Uh, some people feel that no. way. So I'm just wondering if you believe that. No, no, I, I think that I, I, I think some people have more emotional maturity and some people have less emotional maturity and people with less emotional maturity have uh, tend to have relationships with lots more drama in them. And I don't think it really matters whether they're poly or they're monogamous. And people with more emotional maturity tend to have relationships with less drama in them. And it doesn't matter whether they're poly or they're monogamous. No, I, I don't. I don't really think. I think the, the work of relationship uh, is also the work of growing up. Uh, and uh, I, I just don't think uh, what I what I notice is people can hide from the people that are they're sharing a bed with regardless of whether it's one person or two or three that we know how we know how to not show up we know how to not be truthful to ourselves and to our partners and that that's a that's just a thing that it's a phase a thing Many of us go through when we're younger, when we're trying to figure out what our truth is. And I have, uh, I have a lot of uh, compassion. I had a really troubled childhood. Uh, not, I don't know how to say this exactly, but I was, I was unhappy and I went through a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of pain and messed up a lot of relationships and, you know, really. And so I have compassion for that young dramatic person I was, but it wasn't going to help me to be in a, it wasn't going to make it worse or better to be in a poly relationship. I tried. It wasn't going to make it worse or better to be in a monogamous relationship. I tried. It didn't, it wasn't really that. It wasn't really the, that's not where the rubber meets the road, right? That's not the, that's not the problem. I mean, that's really the truth. That's not the problem. Right. The problem. Well, I like that. I like that how you talk. Yeah, you talk about it as two separate things. There's growing up, and then there's the form of relationship you choose, and they're really two separate things. So I like that. Thank you for that answer. Um, So let's talk about jealousy. I've heard I've heard you say that you like jealousy. What's that about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I notice most of us are uncomfortable uh, with our feeling jealous. And we're uncomfortable when somebody's feeling jealous of us. Um, um, a certain amount of envy everybody has. Uh, we just do. That's just uh, everybody, almost everybody. We're we're humans. We see somebody has something that we don't have, and we wish we had it. Uh, so there's a certain amount of covetedness, covetedness, and envy that I think is mammalian. I mean, I just think mm-hmm. I, I watch I watch my dog and my cat sort of compete for my attention. You know. And I can, <laughs> envy and jealousy kind of at work in them, right? If I'm petting one and the other right. one comes and tries to interfere. So, so I, so right away, I want to say whether you like it or you don't like it, I think this is wired into us. Okay. So, so for me, here's what I love about jealousy. There is a quality of jealousy that is about possessiveness. That is, that is 
I want to say Neanderthal. It's, 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 it's lizard brain. It's, it's deeper and older than our humanity. It was in us when, you know, before we evolved as human beings, that's kind of this, I'm in love with my sweetheart. And there's a, when, when I look across the room and some, somebody is hitting on her or monopolizing her attention, or I kind of want to just scream out across the room, she's mine. You know, I want to, you know, there's like this thing of like, you can't have her. Don't you try to take her away from me. She's mine. Right. And I don't know. I, my experience is my partner loves that. I feel that about her and she feels that about me. And yeah, sure. There's some insecurity in there, but there's also this, just this, extraordinary powerful kind of we belong together feeling not we complete each other because i think i think we're both complete you know but i but that we belong together and we yearn to be together and we and we'll jealously guard against whatever feels like it's keeping us from being together that i don't know i think Mm -hmm. that's a beautiful thing i think that's what writes Mm -hmm. love songs and 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 shakespeare plays and you know and poetry i I think that I don't think there's something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So there's that's not to say that jealousy gets that there's other components that we throw in that we call jealousy that I think are really powerful to look at. So what I notice is when I'm having one of those she's mine reactions, when I'm having one of those reactions of those possessive uh, reactions. It's really powerful to just notice how much of that is being fueled by low self-esteem thoughts of mine. How much of that is that I'm worried that that guy has a bigger penis than me or drives a bigger car or has a (laughs) bigger house or has a bigger bank account, right? How much of that is that my insides, I know how screwed up I am. And looking at those other people's outsides, they all look like they have it together. And I need to like distract her from them because she'll see what a worthless shit I am and she'll, and she'll want to go with them. How, mm-hmm. And what I notice is most of us have these self-esteem moments, these low self-esteem moments. We have these moments when we don't really feel good about ourselves. And one of the things that kind of protects us from that feeling is the love of another. So if that feels threatened or it feels like somebody's poaching, we, got, we need to jump in. Yeah, but controlling my partner or partners so I don't feel my low self-esteem. Yeah, that's a bad recipe. There's a different, mm-hmm. there's a different thing that needs to happen from that low self-esteem. So if I bundle that low self-esteem into the possessiveness, okay, now we've got something really, it's a little more complicated than just this thing that my pets do. Right. Now, when I add to the low self-esteem that, um, most of us, when we feel powerless over situations that we think we should be powerful over, get angry. This is just human nature, right? When, when we're late for an appointment, the traffic is thick. You know, we're like, we, we, we gnash our teeth and we, we hit the horn a lot and we're really frustrated. But if we could snap our fingers and make the traffic just open up and drive, our anger would just dissipate. That anger comes from a sense of powerlessness. And, and this is just... Again, this is just kind of human nature. Most human beings, when we feel powerless and we feel like we should be powerful, we get angry. Now, again, if I blame that my partner is over there with those other people, if I blame that for my anger, yeah, that's not going to go well again. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, my anger is about feeling powerless. And, and it is life work. Any, any, any of us who have been in 12-step programs know it is your life work to really, really understand, really understand our fundamental powerlessness. So mm-hmm. again, when we couple that in with the, with the possessiveness, it gets ugly, right? The, the, the possessive part, oh, that's sweet. Okay, I got it. But I, once I'm trying to control you so I don't feel angry, yeah. Ugh. Okay. And then I think there's this, there's one more component. There's actually more than this, but these are sort of the loudest components that I see. I think the way we are born, we have most of us, most of us have nine months in a womb where we are not aware of of feeling too hot or too cold. We're never hungry. It's never too light. It's never too dark, right? We're, we're in a environment 
where we don't actually experience need. Now, I want to say if your parent was an alcoholic or a drug abuser, if, you, if your parent was being violently hurt, I'm, I, there are a lot of traumatized moms out there. And yes, I think that the fetus, the, 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 the baby inside their belly feels something and knows something. But for most of us, mm-hmm. there's a situation where we really experience need. And then in one cataclysmic moment, or sometimes many hours, but in the moment mm-hmm. of birth, a whole new situation happens. So once we're outside the womb, once we're babies, we actually have to experience a need, feel the pain of the need not being met, announce that we feel the pain of the need not being met before the need can get met. So we go from this, we don't even experience need, to we have to actually feel hunger and then cry before the parent knows we're hungry. Mm-hmm. We have to feel uncomfortable in our wet diaper and cry before the parent knows they have to change us. And this is a very different situation. Suddenly, not only do we feel need, but we need somebody else to satisfy that need. Mm-hmm. pre This is how we come into the world. Mm-hmm. And I think we just carry from this, we carry a kind of existential fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has it. I don't think we don't really pay attention to it this way. But I think we all have it. We have mm-hmm. that, that, you know, at some point, our parent is not going to meet a need. And we will feel the fear of, like, it will feel life-threatening. And all, this mm-hmm. is not because parents are bad parents. It's just sometimes it just takes a long time before the parent figures out what the baby needs, right? But all of us have this deeply wired in pre-verbal, if I'm abandoned, I die. And we bring that into our relationship. We bring this. Yeah. This and so fear. many, pe- so many people believe that, um, that in parenting, you shouldn't satisfy all your child's needs or it will spoil them. So I can imagine that that type of parenting will only increase their uh, fear of abandonment. Parenthetically, I just want to say this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a trained parent educator, among other things, I, with a system called PET, Parent Effectiveness Training. And I'm just going to make a categorical statement here. You can disagree with me. People listening, you can disagree with me. But I honestly believe you cannot spoil a child. Mm-hmm. You can hurt a child. You cannot give a child what they need, that you can really be an ineffective parent. But giving your child love, attention, uh, um, paying attention to your child's needs, and and helping your child learn how to meet their needs, this does not spoil a child. You want to spoil a child? Teach that child that no matter how hard they cry, no love will come. That will spoil that Mm -hmm. child. That's Mm -hmm. a child that's going to have a hard time in the world. Teach a right. child that their, that their cries aren't heard. Yeah, that's a child who's going to have a hard time in this world. Mm-hmm. So I don't, right. obviously, I don't believe that. <laughs> right. Thank you. So um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love, excuse me, Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Chaz August who is a um, relationship, intimacy, love, and life coach and a workshop designer and facilitator. And we're talking about jealousy. And I liked what you said at first, Chaz, about jealousy kind of coming from, you know, gosh, I really want to be with this person. They're my chosen one or ones. And um, it's what the making of romance novels and love songs so would it be useful to say that if you're feeling jealousy to kind of focus on that, you know, gosh, I really love this person, kind of just focus on that instead of what you're not getting from the situation? I'm, as you're speaking, I'm nodding my head. Yes. So sometimes I'm kind of a one-trick pony, and my one trick is communication. Okay, the, the thing mm-hmm. I spend most of my time with clients and most of my own work on is communicating. Okay. And really 
it's a powerful thing when I go over to my partner or my partner comes over to me and says, wow, I was looking at you over there and I was really, really jealous. And man, I just really, you know, I just noticed I'm feeling insecure and I think, I think she's prettier or I think he's, I think he's, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm just, I, I just noticed I'm having all these feelings. And I noticed that when we do that, usually the partner who's feeling the, the ugly part of jealousy the response they're going to get from the other one of us is, I love you. I choose you. You. I choose you. I want you to hear this. My life is so much better with you than it ever was without you. Um, yeah, I, that person looks beautiful to me, but I know who I'm taking home tonight. I know who I want in my bed. I love you. Mm-hmm. Because that is really all jealousy is is a manifestation of I'm afraid I might lose you. Okay, I want you to hear. You're not going to lose me that way. That's not. That's mm-hmm. not how. This is not what's going to make our relationship go away. Mm-hmm. And that goes with what you said earlier about, I love how you said people hide from the person they are sharing their bed with. So to vulnerably share that you are feeling insecure, that you felt jealous because that person standing next to you is whatever, um, is an example of not hiding those parts of us that we may not like so much. Exactly so. And I think that, so this is the next piece. I think we get, I, I watch couples, they get angry you know, well, I don't feel like I can go flirt. I can't be myself. I can't go flirt with Sumati because, you know, you're going to get jealous. And, uh, and I, you know, and then I feel bad because you feel bad. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just, let's just get clear here. Your feelings are owned by you. My feelings are owned by me. If, if, if I think my job is to make sure you never feel bad and your job is to make sure I never feel bad, there is a technical name for that. It's called codependency. We don't really right. need to call it by its technical name, but it is useful to note it is not healthy. I need to be compassionate if something I'm doing is making you unhappy. But the moment I start trying to adjust my behavior in the hopes that you won't feel what you're feeling, oh, we're in a dance that's going to lead to misery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, communicate, 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 communicate. Be compassionate now about that, what's happening to Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a tricky topic when it comes to open relationship because you have – People that are new to open relationship often have this whole big long list of agreements. I remember one of the first polyamorous couples I met, they had an agreement that um, they had to stop being with other people at midnight. (laughs) I thought that was just kind of arbitrary, you know. So a lot of times they place all these agreements on each other to try to have control over their feelings. And I want to have compassion for that when you're new to open relationships. Sometimes you do need those external controls as you're learning to let go of, you know, owning the person and learning to manage your feelings of jealousy without having to change the other person's behavior. And I think there's a a growth curve there. Um, So how would you coach people who, um, who have like a bunch of agreements in order to try to protect the other person from feeling jealous? Well, okay. So, so first, uh, agreements are really, really important. And I don't want to, uh, I, I want to, I'm going to say sort of how they work for me, but I, but I want to say, I, I don't want to dismiss agreements or even say that, you know, that only happens in, in, you know, people who are new to poly. No, agreements are important. I get that. I, I, I think what we really need to talk about is, what is the thing I'm trying to achieve when I ask you to make this agreement? What is it I'm trying to achieve? What, what is it you think will happen at, you know, five minutes after midnight that won't happen at five minutes before midnight? You know, like what, <laughs> what is the point of this exercise, of this thing? And what I notice is, and, and this is hard, this is we spend a lot of sessions, I spend a lot of sessions with couples, particularly around this whole agreement thing, because we... <laughs> We're kind of we're kind of sneaky, we human beings. We 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 don't make an agreement about the thing we're really wanting to make the agreement about. We make an agreement about something external, 
in the hopes that it will head off the thing that we really want to make the agreement about. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so what I really coach people and, and really this is work I do in my office pretty much every day. And it's, it's very powerful. We have to get under what that specific agreement is to what is the thing you're trying to accomplish. Are you just setting a bar? Because if this person won't sort of, you know, meet that bar, if they will not do that, then I don't trust them to be poly and I can't trust them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then what we need to work on is trust. We need to recognize that setting external, you know, like if I can't trust you to come home by midnight, then I can't trust you. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have to work on trust. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where does trust come from? Well, that's what I said. I'm kind of a one-trick pony. It comes from communication. If our agreements have to do – so there are health agreements. There are fluid bonding agreements that I think make all the sense in the world. They make absolute, mm-hmm. complete, total sense. There are health reasons why I don't want to take somebody else's uh, uh, germ, germ and virus uh, uh, pattern and bring it into my relationship with that, you know, in this way. I understand all that. That's great. But there are agreements. I listen to people make these agreements about sort of trying to limit how much fun the other person can have or how deeply they can fall in love. And you can't make agreements about this. You can't. Mm-hmm. And the agreements almost always have to do with, almost always, some of the agreements have to do with that stuff I was just talking about, about jealousy. We have to separate out Agreements that are really designed so you don't have to feel your powerlessness. Yeah, that agreement isn't going to work and somebody's going to break that agreement. Agreements that are really designed because I'm feeling abandoned and I think if I make a different agreement with you, then I won't feel abandoned. No, no. The way to, make aban- the way to work on my abandonment issues has nothing to do with controlling you. you know? um, we make agreements that, uh, so I don't have to deal with my self-esteem issues. Right. Um, I, I listen to, well, I, you know, I have to, I, I, you know, I, I get to say no to anybody that you want to be with. Wow. That's uh, that's a, I understand why that agreement is important, but boy, I wouldn't phrase that agreement that way. <laughs> I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I don't think that's right. I think it's just, that's just, you're worried about your esteem. You're worried that somehow or other, somebody will feel more threatening to you when really let's deal with why it feels threatening to you at all. Let's, let's come from that place. What is this? If I say I love you and I say, and we go in knowing a deep part of what feels like I, what feels natural and right for me is a relationship where I have multiple partners, be it two, be it three, I don't know, but I have multiple partners. Well, what feels right is, um, I, I, I know a couple of the relationships where it's really, it's two couples, but it's not two couples. It's four. <laughs> okay. But it's, you know, like it's, it's this amazing foursome and, and, and what, the, and for them, it just sort of answers so many problems and feels so good. So great from that place, let's figure out why we choose each other. And then let's figure out how to not dishonor those choices. Let's figure mm-hmm. out how to communicate, talk about when, when it feels like the behavior you're doing doesn't feel loving to me. And then let's talk about that. Let's find, let's figure out, well, is that because it's unloving behavior? Is that because I'm afraid? Is that, what do I need? What do you need? Right. That's so to me, I think always, almost always the first set of rules that poly people draw up are almost never address the thing they're really trying to fix. Right. And I like the way when you're talking about communication, it reminds me of something I learned in the high couples workshop about being on the same side of the being on the same team. And I remember the facilitators, you know, demonstrating it by putting their arms around each other and demonstrating physically that we're on the same team here. And the problem is over there on the other side of the table, as opposed to us being on opposite sides of the table. Um, So with this communication that you're talking about, um, I think if, if people practice it and get good at it, they remember that they're on the same team and they've both agreed that they want to have an open relationship. Um, I'm assuming they've agreed on that or <laughs> it's not going to work from the start, um, but they've agreed with that. And then it just becomes a matter of how do we have this open relationship that works for both of us? Let's stay on the same team around that. Yes. Yes. And let's not kid ourselves. Every relationship's going to have bumps. 
I don't mm-hmm. care how I don't care how committed we are to communication. I don't care how I, I, um, I don't care. You name me the guru that you've put up on a pedestal and you think their relationship doesn't have bumps. And I'll tell you, if I know that guru personally, I can tell you stories of when I watched him, them and their partner in bump. <laughs> relationships, mm-hmm. this is the nature of relationships. We're going to have bumps. We're going to have moments when one of us feels unseen or unloved or when we, when we feel like the whole thing is just going to hell in a handbasket. There's moments when we're going to wonder, did we make a mistake? There's, more, well, there's going to be, in every relationship, monogamous or poly, and often parenting, there's going to be moments where it just feels like we're kidding ourselves and it's all falling apart. That happens. It's what we do after that moment. Really, that's where that's the powerful work. What do I do after mm-hmm. that moment when I lost hope? Mm-hmm. What do I do in that moment when I feel betrayed? doesn't matter whether I should feel betrayed or not. I feel betrayed. What mm-hmm. do I do in that moment when I feel hopeless? And to me, that's, that's really the real work of relationship. That's the real work. Yeah. That's the and, moment that we have. Yeah. And that's a perfect right. segue for my next question, which is I remember you being particularly good with uh, I think you had an anger workshop back in the day and yeah. you have some experience helping people with anger. And that's a common emotion that comes up in relationships where we get triggered into our, our core rage and fury and say some of the worst things to the person that we regret later. So how do you, how do you help people through their anger triggers? So let me just go on the record here. I love, I, I love anger. Okay, I I I find it a funny prejudice that we have, um, we Americans particularly, but I think in the Western world, this funny prejudice we have that um, that feelings are good and emotions are good, but not anger. (laughs) Right. That we should embrace our feelings and we should learn to really communicate our feelings, but not anger. We should mm-hmm. we should learn how to you know like when when we feel a feeling we should really just dive right into that feeling yeah but not anger right I yeah it doesn't work like that okay so I, I want to say this is an off this is sort of a side effect of my upbringing in the alcoholic family I grew up in anger was the main language everybody screamed everybody yelled people said horrendous things to each other people um, humiliated each other it was by any measure, an abusive household, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love my parents. They were doing their best. But by any measure, it was an abusive household, okay? And so I grew up sort of having, a, having sort of like a black belt in how to wield anger to really, really hurt other people. And uh, that's not such a great skill to have as an adult people learn to really stay far away from you and you wind up hurting people that you don't really mean to hurt. So I wound up hurting people I didn't really mean to hurt. So here I was, this angry, angry person. And this was probably the first real personal growth work I did. And I, I went through a period where I wasn't getting jobs. I, I'd, had, I'd had a pretty good employment record. And then I went, after like 15 years, I went through this like period of time where I couldn't find a job. And I was talking to a friend of mine and my friend said to me, well, maybe it's because you leak anger all the time. And I, mm. I just talked all over him, you know, like, what do you mean leak anger? I don't leak anger. Who are you talking about leaking? I never <laughs> leak anger, you know, like, until I finally calmed down. And he said, yeah, that, <laughs> you know. So I, I did this thing. really, I did this. I went around and I, I asked him and I asked other teachers and wise people I knew, well, all right, how do you learn not to be so angry? And uh, a lot of people had no answer for me. And I'm amazed at how many therapists said, yeah, we don't do anger work in my office. I have, you know, office mates. We can't make a lot of noise in the office. It's not okay. You know, and I just, I noticed that there is a real cultural bias against anger. And what I did is I developed, I tried every anger exercise that anybody gave me that made sense to me. And I developed a workshop based on four anger exercises that had worked really well for me. By worked well, what I mean is, that by the time I was leading this workshop, I no longer felt like I was an angry person. I felt mm. like I could have anger without anger having me. I felt mm-hmm. like um, places where my very passionate self, and I am passionate, came out as blazing hot anger, now had expression as passion. 
yeah, I was excited about things. I was bigger than life about things, but it didn't have that feeling of a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Maybe more like a fire hose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> gushing water. <laughs> but so I, so these four exercises worked really well for me. And one of the exercises was a writing exercise where I really sort of explored all the feelings that my anger was covering up. And one of the exercises was beating pillows. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the exercises was uh, um, actually ha- finding a partner and uh, having a partner sort of help you get out the anger. And there are a couple of different ways I, we did that, right? Ways where the partner that you're expressing the anger to is not a person you're angry at and just helps mm-hmm. you sort of. And, I, and these exercises, these were all exercises that I did that helped me. That mm-hmm. helped me find something, okay? And I, so I put together a day of it, and I invited people. What do you know? There's always angry people around who are trying to find it out. And I began to learn how beautiful it is, how, how amazing when people really let themselves feel to the depths of their feeling and then find what's under that and then find what's under that and then find what's under that. Oh, my God. Anger is extraordinary. You want to know who makes a difference on this planet? It's people who get angry enough to make a difference on this planet. Mm. And what we, don't, what we don't learn is how to have our anger and be effect, as effective in expressing our anger as we are in expressing our love. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason not to learn it. Right? My anger is a lovely, lovely thing. I wouldn't give it up for anything. And I'm glad I don't go around hurting people anymore. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that because in our culture, anger is so not acceptable that that tends to play a part in people expressing it more irresponsibly because obviously I don't want somebody just spewing their anger at me all the time. Um, Or I have room for people to do that on occasion if they own it later and apologize, but not justifiably think that they can just yell at me anytime. (laughs) I I think there's pieces of it all. So I think, uh, because we're so afraid of anger, we don't really teach anybody. We, we, what we teach people how to do is how to deflect it or bottle it up. If you watch mm-hmm. on any playing field in America, um, watch little boys of between five and eight years old playing a game of soccer on any school field anywhere. And you'll see, you know, one kid will get kicked really hard in the shin and he'll fall down because that happens in soccer, right? And he'll fall down mm-hmm. and he'll look around. And if his mom is there watching, he may burst into tears and go running over to mom and be crying. But when he comes back to the field, all the other players are going to make fun of him. Cry, baby, cry, baby, you know, right? They're all going to make fun of him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what he learns the next time he gets kicked, even if his mom's around, even if he wants to cry, get up and yell. And you watch these little kids do it. You see these little six-year-olds, I'll get you, I'll get you, you can't do that to me, right? And they learn at five and six, turn your anger into violence and get the person that made you feel that way. Mm. And you see it on our highways and you see it in, you see it in angry people walking around in culture, you, right? These people, nobody ever taught this kid how to embrace and then find what's under that and then find what's under that and then figure out what your anger is motivating you to do and figure out a right response to your anger. Nobody ever taught anybody that. Um, now, little mm-hmm. girls, it's really, this is not, this is not universally true, but they're way too true. Little girls, man, are, just think of the English language. Tell me a word in English that means angry woman. <laughs> The B word. <laughs> you bet. And it's the only one. And everybody, it, it is the word that means angry women. So what does that tell you? Well, it, from your earliest time as a, as a little girl, every time you acted out in anger, somebody told you it wasn't ladylike. Somebody told you, uh, you, you got ignored. You got pushed away. You got sent away. You got, you got in trouble. And what little girls often learn is if they can turn their anger into tears, they'll get a better reaction than if they leave their anger in anger. And so here's what I see. I see grown men who really want to cry and they go around leaking anger everywhere. And I see grown women who really are angry and they go around crying everywhere. (laughs) Very good. Our, (laughs) Our culture, we don't teach this. So 
really, it's not, I'm not giving people permission to just scream and yell at each other. I don't, I, I don't have the right to just yell at somebody. I don't have the right to, I, I told you that that's part of the abuse I grew up in. I will not be in a relationship where somebody just yells at me, but I have great right. affection, affinity and space for somebody to say, I'm really angry and I need to be able to tell you about this. And Oh my God, when I can tell other people what I'm angry about and they can tell me what they're angry about, miracles happen. Mm. Love. Awesome. Thank you for that reframe of anger. That was really powerful. I'm so glad I asked. Because <laughs> I know you have many years of thinking about that topic and working with it. So um, let's move on and talk a little bit about your spiritual beliefs, because I, I know that's um, part of who you are and how you coach. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking. So um, I was raised uh, Jewish, but uh, I, I really didn't quite get it. I, I didn't, there, I didn't, I can tell you all the things about Judaism that just never really landed with me, but just simply, I didn't understand why God only spoke Hebrew. <laughs> it didn't make any, I spoke English. Did God be able to speak English? Right. I didn't, you know, I didn't understand like the really primary things, you know? Um, uh, I, in college, I, I studied various religions. I fancied myself a Buddhist for a long while and studied a lot of a lot of Buddhist philosophy and learned a lot of interesting things about leading life. In the end, here's what I believe. And uh, I don't want, I will skip the whole journey to get to it, but this is what I believe. Uh, I think that the universe is uh, that there's basically, if I understand physics, four basic forces in the universe. There's strong force, weak force, mag- magnetism, gravity. And, and all of them are about something attracting something else. They're about negatives attracting positives. They're about mass attracting mass. They are all unconscious a drawing together. And they're the four basic forces that physicists can find in the universe. And I have a belief that what those forces are is love that the fundamental force in the universe is love and that what the purpose of human beings is, is to make that fundamental force conscious. Mm -hmm. We are here. We are here on this planet to love and be loved. We are here on this planet to take this force that runs through everything and Bring it into our consciousness, bring it into our very being, bring it into our behavior, bring it into our relationships, bring it into our relationship with the planet, bring it into the, that really, that's the, that's what the world's about, okay? Stan used to say, Mm -hmm. Stan Dale was my mentor for those 17 years I worked at High. Um, Stan Stan Dale used to say, uh, everything is either an act of love or a cry for love. Mm. And Really, if you if you're willing to look with those eyes, oh man! I at least the, this past year, there's been some pretty really awful cries for love. Okay, I'm not defending anybody's behavior. I'm not saying that the ways that some of these people have been crying for love is acceptable or appropriate. I'm just saying I can see how clearly they're a cry for love. Mm-hmm. And once you can see that, now. You have a possibility, I think, to live a life in love. And a life lived in love is a life of joy. It's a life of happiness. It's a life of service. It's a life of, mm-hmm. um, it's a life worth living. So mm-hmm. at a deep level, this is what I teach. You don't have to believe what I believe, but this is what I teach. I teach us how to mm-hmm. find our way into and through love. Mm-hmm. And so I could see how that belief would show up when you're working with a couple or a threesome, foursome or moresome, um, where uh, a lot of times there's chaos going on and they're in a combative kind of mode and not feeling understood and heard by each other, that if you see that as as a cry for love, then um, that's a starting point for bringing them back together. Yeah, yeah. And, and literally, there's lots of tears in my office. 
People, mm-hmm. people who don't think they can cry or have never cried. Mm-hmm. Once, once really they're being heard for the cry for love they've been crying, there's just some moment where you just let down. You just think, oh my God, somebody finally gets what, I'm, what I've been begging for. Somebody sees what I need. And then we can kind of move past the drama and the fireworks and the stuff that doesn't actually get us the love that we're crying for and learn how to learn more effective ways of asking for it and learn more effective ways of giving it and learn how to have boundaries around it. So, thank yeah. you, Taz. I, need, I needed a reminder of that right now, so thank you. <laughs> um, so before we run out of time, I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know how to reach you. But before we go to that, um, if you could just give people one more nugget of wisdom before we, we close, what would that be? Hmm. Uh, you know, I've been uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, uh, this uh, Me Too moment that's going on on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about uh, all these ways that we have that. Uh, many, many men have used sex and sexuality to hurt many, many women. Mm-hmm. And I've been, I've been thinking about uh, things that I did in my youth that now I'm ashamed and embarrassed about and, and how, you know, how much many of us are experience of going through our teen years and, and discovering our sexuality is also an experience of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and, and often really, you know, molestation and trauma. Okay. And, and I'm, and I'm wanting, if I could say to anybody, <laughs> if I, I, I kind of think the path through this, is a path about, I don't know how to say this well, that everything is an act of love or a cry for love and that we have to figure out how to really listen to the ones who've been hurt, receive, hear, and embrace the reality of the hurtfulness. We have to be willing to hear from the ones who have been hurting, have been doing the hurting, and hear where, where in fact, it's their twisted cry for love, compassion. And then we have to do one more thing. We have to kind of step up, I think, all of us, and name it when we see it. You have to be willing to have a kind of engaged bystander attitude. That when I see something in the world, anywhere in my life, anywhere that I bump into it, where it feels like, wow, that was really demeaning. Wow, that was really, that seemed inappropriate. Wow, that made me uncomfortable. I have to just say it. You just have to notice it and say it. And my fantasy is if we would stop uh, trying to either deny it or make it go away or trying to punish people or, or, you know, like if we would get out of that mode and get more into the mode of just hearing each other. Yes, I'm going to have to interrupt you right there because we only have one minute left and I want to give people um, give you a chance to tell people how to reach you. I love what you're saying. Thank you so much. You've been awesome. Please take uh, 45 seconds and tell people how they can reach you. Well, um, sure. It's really easy to reach me. My name, Chaz August, C-H-A-S-A-U-G-U-S-T. That's also my website and uh, my email. So you can reach me at chazaugust at gmail.com. You can reach me at chaz at chazaugust.com. You can write that name is the key, right? Chaz August. So um, please feel free to reach me either. And you can go to my website at chazaugust.com. 
So that's the easiest Perfect. way to reach out to me. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. And on my website, you can read more of my ponderings and thoughts and learn a little bit about more of what I do. And uh, I, I want to say, if you mention that you heard me on this show, I will happily give you a free half hour of my time. You and I just talking Thank you. On the phone. We have five seconds, three seconds. Thank you for being on the show. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.